Welcome to the podcast. It's dedicated to making you a faster cyclist. The Ask a Cycling Coach podcast presented by Trainer Road. I am Coach Jonathan Lee. Coach Chad Timmerman is here with me. Hey, everybody. And so is our CEO, Nate Pearson. Hello. And we are here to answer more of your coaching questions. You can submit those questions to us if you go to trainerroad.com slash podcast. And you can have a form on there, get information about other other questions we've answered, see who we are, uh, get all the info you need at trainerroad.com slash podcast. You can also use Twitter and just use a hashtag AskTrainerRoad, and we'll find it on there, or Instagram, however else you want to send it to us, and that'll work just fine. We go through as many questions as we can each week, uh, but we do get a lot of them. So if we don't answer your question, we apologize. We're just we're just three men, nothing more. So we can, we can only answer so much. <laughs> Speak for yourself. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, you can find this podcast on iTunes. You can find it on SoundCloud, Stitcher, uh, whatever other podcasting app you use. You should be able to find it. Just search for Ask a Cycling Coach or Train a Road, and you can leave us a review on most of those platforms. Uh, Five-star reviews are really sweet. We dig those. And you can also go on to SoundCloud when you're there and you can leave questions or timestamp questions, anything else like that, comments, and you can see other comments or questions people have left there as well. So that uh, pretty much covers how you can listen to this. So let's actually get into talking about it. Before we get into the questions, as some listeners may know, we are Chad, Nate, and I. It's not really a weight loss challenge, but what we are doing is we're, we're testing out different ways to measure our body fat and our weight see what's most accurate, and then see what things we can do to drop weight and ideally maintain and or add muscle. And I don't have an update personally, but I know you you two do. You guys have updates. And Jonathan, uh, even if it's not a challenge or whatever, it's everything we do is a competition. Just so you guys know, <laughs> very at, at Trainer Road, I don't know, we could be uh, drinking cups of water. Oh, I drink eight cups. Yeah. I drink nine. It's a very competitive <laughs> office here. Mm. Okay, I'm sure so, everybody listening to this is probably the same way too. Yeah, know? exactly. That's why they're listening to a podcast about how to beat their competition. Um, exactly. <laughs> so for those who don't know, these are the, the things that we used. The, the gold standard that we use is called a DEXA, and it's you go to like an actual uh, lab, and it's an x-ray machine, and it does it shoots two different uh, types of x-ray through you, and it measures your, your bone, your uh, lean mass, and your body fat, and it's considered the gold standard. We also did uh, calipers. So that's the skin fold test where you kind of pinch your fat, and uh, based on how and much we're just, you use, we're just doing that areas. on ourselves. Yep. Yeah. And and just, it, and it also bears saying. I know we've mentioned this before, but we're we're all using the same skin caliper, uh, skin fold caliper, and it's one that doesn't um, require you to pinch down, but it actually it you have to apply pressure to open it and then it clamps down with a spring. That way you can be sure that it's consistent tension and everything else. So yep. Yep. and we do it a and number then, of times each. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then the other one is we use a Tanita scale, which is one of those ones where you step on it and it's uh measures the electrical impedance. Is that how you say it, Chad? Yep. yep. That's right. Um and and that can give you an estimate of what your body fat is. So it's been two months since we've done it. Chad, how did you feel during those two months? Um, pretty good, except when I got a little extreme with my dieting. I, I kind of did a little crash course in it because I went on vacation one week prior to my DEXA scan. So I tried to make up for lost time and got a little severe with my dieting and working out just to get back on track. So I don't think I <laughs> skewed any numbers. I think I just kind of, like I said, put myself back where I was prior to vacation. What did you do? to crash and what were your numbers before and after the crash? Um, my intention was simply to skip dinner, but I ended up 
inadvertently skipping breakfast as well. So really, I just kind of had a meal each day. <laughs> then I would do a late afternoon workout, and they went from bad to worse. Uh, and then uh, skipped dinner and got up and did it all over again. So it was pretty severe caloric restriction. Some of it intentional, some of it not so much, but all of it pretty effective. So you you didn't uh, you probably didn't gain any fitness during that time, right? No, in fact, I'm pretty sure that post-vacation and, and some work on the house, like a 10-day hiatus, cost me a little bit in my threshold or my functional threshold power. Nothing I won't get back uh, pretty quickly, but at the moment, I'm a little bit below what I was when I left for vacation. So Chad, his uh, he came in two months ago at 183. The day of the test, he was 178. So that's good. Uh, no. Five-pound weight loss. His DEXA scan last time was 17.2% body fat. And then this time... 14.5. So that's that's really good, that's Chad. Huge. Yeah. yeah. So you lost. I'm, real, I'm really happy 3%. with that. Yeah. Big deal. So the interesting part in that is Chad actually lost uh, 5.43 pounds of fat and gained almost a pound of muscle. So mm-hmm. Chad lost fat and gained muscle. So that's really cool. Is with the DEXAs we get to see the muscle, and normally you'd only look at the scale. Yeah. And uh, don't get the breakdown. Yeah. Exactly. So if Chad wanted to have a, a a really skinny upper body, he could, but he was lifting weights too during that time. Yep. Still, so, still uh, a believer Chad, in, in the whole strong body notion. So then the, um, <laughs> yep, totally true. the relationship between the Tanita, let's do the calipers first. So the calipers before you, you were 10% and then this time you went down to 8%. So the DEXA, you lost almost 3% body fat and calipers, you lost 2%. Uh, that's yep pretty uh, close correlation the tanita athlete you lost um you were at 10.6 before and now you're at 7.1 so that's like 3.5 percent that you lost in the tanita athlete and the tanita regular on that one you lost about three and a half percent too you went from 18.3 to Mm 14.6 so they all they're that's they're all pretty in line which is i'm happy about yeah, they are. And what's what's super interesting, what we're finding is that uh, the Tinita scale, when we put it on a normal person, is correlating really strongly with the DEXA scan, the $50 DEXA scan. And the athlete setting is correlating really closely with the calipers. So it, we'll, we'll see how this third one goes. But at this point, it's looking like we can reliably use this Tinita scale. I don't want to speak too soon, but it's it's promising. Yeah, it looks like the Tinita might be kind of like a uh, like virtual power. Where we can maybe not know our absolute what our dex is going to be, but we can say like, oh, if I lost a percent here, then I lost a percent of body fat, and same just like the and it, same with the calipers, you could do the same thing, but the tanita is just so easy because you can jump on it every morning yeah. and watch it. Okay, so for my results, yep. so I was the fat guy, um, <laughs> and I don't think I don't know. I sign your guys' paychecks so you can say stuff, but I don't think like you look at me and you think I'm a fat person. At anyone anywhere no. else around it, I'm usually the skinniest guy in the room. Uh yeah, but not six foot six, you're never gonna you're gonna have to try real hard to get legitimately fat. <laughs> <laughs> I was trying hard before. So my previous weight was two hundred pounds, and then I weighed in at one ninety three. Um my previous DEXA body fat was twenty three point seven percent, and now I went down to uh nineteen point nine. So I also lost about, what is that? 3%, almost 4%. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Now, yeah, almost 4% of body fat. So that's good. But also, so everyone knows, just like my FTPs been going up a lot more is I start, if you start fatter, 
it'll be easier to lose weight. And if you start off weaker, it'll be easier to gain your FTP. So although yeah. I'm the absolute in terms of numbers, I, I'm going to call me a winner and the champion. Um, you guys are playing <laughs> with a handicap. So by being skinny, you should have got fatter before. But here's like the interesting exactly. part yeah. is my fat and lean mass change. So I lost eight pounds of fat, which was awesome. And I gained 3.85, so almost four pounds of muscle. And I'm kind of proud of myself. That's a huge... I Normally, it's really hard to lose fat and gain muscle. Part of it's probably because I'm coming from a generally un... You know, I was, I'm not a high level of fitness, but that's pretty cool. Um, mm-hmm. Where the muscle was gained, because the DEXA shows that too. So when I was... I, we have the, you know, the coffee room weights. And every time I get a cup of coffee, lift some weights. I always want to go talk to Chad because his office is right by there. I'll lift some weights. Um, I did only upper body lifting. I did no lower body lifting just because I was cycling six days a week. And I feel like I can't recover. Like if I do mm-hmm. squats or something, my next day, I, like, I just can't ride at all. So I gained most of my muscle in my arms. My arms gained 1.72 pounds of muscle, which is crazy. Um, I'm sure all you guys can notice because I'm so buff. Sun's out, um, guns out, Nate. It's getting warm. Boss too. is yoked. My trunk gained one pound of muscle, and my legs. Even though I was cycling six times a week, when you think your legs too would be the a place that's really easy to gain a lot of mass, uh, only gained a pound of muscle. So my my arms actually gained twice the amount of muscle than my legs, which is mm. it's kind of cool and it's cool to see. I'm I'd kind of like to to have more muscle gained on my trunk, so my chest and my back and my shoulders rather than just my arms, because you can look kind of funny if you have really big arms and skinny everything else, but I don't know what to do to solve that. So, But what what I found particularly interesting about this whole process is that in the past, in order to drop weight, <clears throat> excuse me, for uh, performance improvement, basically, I've had to suffer pretty dearly. It's been um, a, a really uncomfortable process. And, and this time around with you know an, an understanding that's always improving, a nutrition understanding that's always on the upswing, always learn and learn and learn. And, um, this hasn't been a miserable experience. It's, it's been more about timing my nutrients relative to my workouts, deciding, you know, what I need to get out of a workout, what I have ahead of me that day, or perhaps that evening when I need to eat, what the composition of that meal is. So I'm just being more careful about what I'm choosing and more importantly, when I'm eating it. And it's made this uh, basically a painless process. I still have my indulgences here and there. Um, I'm not going to bed starving. I'm not spending any part of my day starving, say for that one exceptional week, but it's, it's, uh, it's been a very tolerable process and everything's in track. Weight's going down, performance is coming up, um, not losing any muscle mass in the process, et cetera. Yeah. Maybe yeah, it's really you, interesting Chad. to me to see <laughs> it's been miserable for you, Nate. <laughs> well, yeah. Uh, so I had that one, sorry, John, but I had that one week at no that all inclusive resort where I ate a bunch and I had a week of not training cause I was sick. And, uh, so I lost twice the amount of fat that Chad did, and I gained pretty much four times the amount of muscle. And I feel like I was totally restricting myself. Like it was a mental <laughs> battle a lot. And just, I mean, uh, based on the results, I had a bigger calorie deficit than Chad did, right? Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. even though, yeah. so it was hard for me and I hope to go maybe a little, uh, well, we'll see. I don't, what's your, sorry, well, John, see, this, before, this, go ahead. I was just going to say, this This underlies my whole point that all this has to be sustainable. So for Nate yep. to perpetuate what he's doing right now, his his whole uh, pattern of, of weight loss, muscle gain, I, I'm not sure it's sustainable. It's hard on him. So at some point, 
it's going to start to to break down in one in one way or another. But in my case, you know, I've, I've worked on this literally year after year trying to improve the process. And I'm to a point now where I feel like this is actually sustainable. What I'm doing right now is something I could do for the rest of the year, uh, performance enhancement aside. I, I was, I, what I want to do is I was hoping that I would be a little bit lower this time. And then I would just be able to be like on mm-hmm. maintenance and kind of eat gotcha. what my caloric intake is. Because that's, I, I feel like I could sustain, you, you know, I'm, I'm obviously on a big deficit right now, but I still need yeah, to go. Yeah, so once you level farther. out. Yeah, and yeah. then I can kind of like sustain it. Um, and sure. it's easier to get stronger then too, you know? Exactly. Yeah, totally. Like that's the thing I notice mm-hmm. is it's really, um, as the workouts get harder with my new higher FTP, I really have to, the backup Chad's point is time my carbohydrates and mm-hmm. trying to eat. Uh, Chad, you really hit it home for me last uh, podcast when you said, eat for your next workout. So kind of eat before mm-hmm. that. If you're going to have a intense interval over under se- session, eat your carbohydrates yeah. before that. And, uh, and then at night, I think Chad and I too, we both really feel strongly about not eating carbohydrates late at night and trying to yep. eat less Same late boat. at night. Very much so. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think that's, if you changed one thing and that was that only, that was the only thing you'd, you'd see some, uh, positive results due to that yes, one simple change. So uh, yeah. I want to, Jonathan, I keep cutting you off, but I want to just talk about the differences between the different measurements for me because they, they're really, mm-hmm. they're in line. So my calipers went from 17%. Now I'm at 14% body fat, which um, on calipers, that's probably what normally people, when they go test, that's what they would see rather than 19.9. And that, so that's 3%. And that's right in line with my DEXA. Um, the Tanita went from athlete settings, went from 16.2 to 13.5. So that correlated really well with the uh the calipers too and then the tanita regular went from 21.8 to 18.4 and again that calibrates really well with the dexa scan um mm-hmm. so i think i'm i think my goal on dexa is to get down to about 15 percent. that's probably a good maintenance for me i'll probably like somewhere a healthy... around seven probably around seven or seven and a half percent then with calipers uh oh geez that sounds too somewhere low around there. maybe around 10 i think Four, yeah, 10, 10% on calipers. Because if I lose another 4% yeah. body fat, that's that's what I need, around 4%. Cool. For total points, yeah. not 4%. Yeah, makes sense. And that's the one thing, if you guys are listening to this and the percentages sound high, remember, and this is something we've covered before, but and I'm sure you've gotten it already by listening to this, but basically the, the DEXA, it's scanning your whole entire body three-dimensionally for fat rather than just taking a certain area's samples of that. So it's picking up a whole lot more fat that just doesn't show yeah. on the yeah, outside. So when- so when we do the calipers, that's subcutaneous fat, right? That's the stuff that's evident to everybody. But the DEXA measures everything, whether it's intramuscular yeah. or visceral, or all the all the fat sources on your entire body. And most of us are used to fat percentages that come from skin fold calipers. Just like you know, in general conversation, we talk about an athlete. It's it's kind of like a long been understood thing. If you're an active person and you're an athlete, you're below twelve percent type of a thing. That's all with skin fold caliper data that you're getting from that. So, so this is just uh, different ways to measure it. And it's pretty interesting what we've been able to find out in the, in the end, it's just, we're dropping, we're trying to find out how we can measure how much weight we're dropping, if it's good weight to drop and then what type of weight we're gaining because recycling, it's all about power to weight, right? That's, yeah, that's it's, what makes it fast. So if I was yeah. racing, I wouldn't be lifting upper body probably at all. And like, if I was, well, I'm going to race some round bikes, but if I was really serious and wanted to win something and I would have dropped another, I mean, four pounds, probably more because I probably would have lost upper body mass 
that I don't. That's I know. I was so happy though that I lost weight because we talk about all these <laughs> yeah. things, right? And I felt like I was losing <laughs> weight, and uh, just it feels good. If if I was gonna flip out, like. If, if I came back yeah, well, see, and it's like, you lost eight pounds see, of muscle, zero pounds of fat, I was going to be like, I don't know what my whole world would have shattered. And, and part of what we're, another part of what we're trying to do is is offer a, a, a inexpensive, reliable way for you to do this at home you know, and for us to do it at home too, so that we don't have to do the DEXA scans all the time. And, and the Tanita scales are proving to be just that. Um, what, what the Tanita scale is not going to tell you and what the DEXA scan has confirmed is that uh, it, it's body composition, right? We're, yeah, we're losing weight, but where's that weight coming from? We all wanted to make sure that we're losing fat and we're not losing muscle. And, you know, so far, so good. Oh, yeah. The yeah. other thing about my test is that my numbers don't add up. So I lost seven pounds um, on the scale, but I lost about eight pounds of fat and I gained four pounds of muscle. So that should be a four pound swing rather than a seven pound swing. And we're not sure where the rest is. My, you know, this test too said my bones weigh a little bit less. Chaz done this test three times and his bones always been within grams of it. And I don't know if that's, um, you know, it's because I'm water weight or blood or I'm, I'm not sure what is huh. why that difference is, but it'll be interesting to see as we go farther down, like and do more of these, what, what that is. So if someone did the math in their head, they're like, Hey, that's BS. Those numbers yeah. don't add up. Mm-hmm. And I'll Chad, be, what's um, your goal? What's your goal? Body fat percent? Dexa? Um, what am I at? What am I at right now? The numbers disappeared. Um, Sorry, let me go back. You are at 14.5. Yeah, so if I could get down probably 12%, maybe as low as 11. Dude, so that's really low because the caliper is at 8%. Mm-hmm. So that's what normally people would look at. So caliper is like mm-hmm. 5%. Yeah, I think that would probably be the bottom of it. 6%. I don't necessarily need yeah. to get that low though, but I've got another 10, so, so easily 10 pounds to lose. Mm-hmm. Wow. And I'll be measuring next week, so I'll let you guys know. I probably won't see many, many. I won't. I'll probably see the smallest amount of change in regards to fat loss, but I think that I will see. Hopefully, the goal is that I'll see change in, in or increase in muscle mass as well. So, we'll Jonathan, see. so you started Fingers at twelve point nine, which is Chad's end goal. That's your starting. Yeah. Point. Yes, exactly. and you're like in the, uh, not even like I'm training. Weighing- your knees hurt and. Yeah, I can't train. So that's the really hard thing is that this is going to be interesting to see what happens when you lack that consistency in your training um, because of a knee injury. I'm, I'm kind of sidelined every once in a while, actually more often than not. So um, we'll be able to see what kind of effect that has on you. Um, and yeah, that'll, that'll be interesting. Yeah, because I am certainly, by the way, I'm. I, there's a lot of discipline involved in what I'm eating right now. It's not a lot of fun. Uh, it's way more, honestly, if I have a workout that's coming up, I kind of, I... I revel in the challenge of that workout and, and the focus that I would put into how hungry I am. I just put into the workout. It's not too tough to handle. Um, they go hand in hand, um, you know, ironically enough, but so yeah, we'll see. We'll see what it says. Let's move into Mark's question. Um, first one, he says, hi coach Chad, I'm getting into time trialing this year and have started the 40 KTT specialty block. I noticed that your time trial simulation workouts like unicorn TT have a certain power profile to them. One quarter steadily building up power, one quarter slightly under threshold, and one quarter of fury where you peak slightly over threshold. Then a final quarter of slow death where you fade back to FTP. Is this a pacing strategy you'd recommend on race day? And do you want me to read the uh, next part, Chad? Or, you know, let's go to this uh, first. No, let's do these two separate questions. Uh, Mark, it is and it isn't. Uh, I like... 
it's a workable pacing strategy for sure. But what I'm trying to convey over the course of each time trial is I'm, I'm breaking it down into quarters, as I so often do. Um, the first quarter, exactly right. You, you, you want to build up to power. You don't want to go out too fast. Um, the second quarter, I have you, uh, where does it say, where you're slightly under threshold. I, that's just to basically to encourage you throughout the actual workout. I don't know if I would recommend that as a pacing strategy. And then that, that third quarter where you peak <laughs> slightly over threshold, that's just trying to get you in the habit of working through what is often a sticking point for most riders. That third quarter, that's when people start to lose focus, where they start to doubt. They're only halfway and they're hurting really bad. And, and when they kind of start to check out. So I make that a little harder to just kind of keep you uh, on task. And then the fourth quarter, you know, is, is what it is. You just kind of hang in there as best you can. So it is a workable pacing strategy, but it's more about teaching you how to uh, prepare yourself mentally for what you're going to face when you're outdoors. There's a website called uh, sportsscientist.com and uh, Russ Tucker's on it. And he does some really cool analysis of Tour de France performances and just general performances in sport. And <clears throat> he did a little meta-analysis that showed that Virtually every world record that's ever been set has had a slightly, slightly, slightly negative pace, meaning that the second half was faster than the first half. And he was negative saying split. it was like, yeah, negative split. So it was uh, like the first half will be 49.9 and the second half will be 50.1. So the, the second half will just be a few seconds faster. It depends. This is, and this held true from like marathon to, uh, to you know, 5K races. And everything. So that's, and I think there's some physiological reasons for that. You know, we know that if you go out too hard, everything else is going to be harder. And a lot of times, new people are like, I'm going to bank some time right away because I feel fresh. No, that's, that's the worst thing to do. Like the number one rule, time trialing, don't go out too hard. So if you do have like an optimal pacing strategy and it's really hard to do, but it is to negative split, have the second half be slightly faster than the first. And that holds true for something like a 40k TT, but it doesn't necessarily hold true for a multi-sport uh, uh, event. Um, I was reading something the other day that talked about having positive splits on the swim yielded better bike times and having positive splits on the bike yield better, yielded better run times. That uh, makes don't, sense too. I yeah. don't know what it said as far as overall finishes. I think the overall finish times went up as well, but I can't recall right now. But the idea is that you know, you, you go out pretty hard and then you kind of start to taper off such that you're not completely gas heading into the next, uh, discipline. Well, triathlons too, you get a benefit. If you start hard on the swim is being with a fast pack mm -hmm. and then you get mm -hmm. to uh, draft and the same on the bike, like especially age grouper where the amount of room that you have for legally, there is a, a draft that you get. Um, it's small, yeah. but being with faster riders and getting that draft is a total advantage. Mm -hmm. Especially on the course, if it's, uh, you know, it depends in certain areas, but I know a lot of the courses out here in the West, the afternoons get super windy too. Uh, the earlier you can get out there and many times avoid that, that those crosswinds and headwinds, you'll be better off too. Yeah. If you, so. if you're going into a headwind, then this is something that I think people don't always think about, but if you're going to a headwind, um, your draft is going to be more, even if you're farther behind somebody. And mm -hmm. if there's a tailwind, your draft is going to be less effective. Exactly. Right. That makes sense. Yeah. And then he asks, he says, also as a new time trialist, I'm targeting shorter distances this season, 10 to 15 miles. Is the 40 KTT plan still the best plan? 
Yes, it is. We're, we're still just training steady state power. So whether it's a 10 mile time trial, 25 mile time trial, um, and I, I know there are longer ones out there, not real common, but it doesn't really matter what the duration is. Really anything that's, that's got you going for more than eight minutes is going <clears> to, <throat> is going to work really well with, uh, the, the approach of the 40 K TT plans. Nice. Todd's question. He says, Hey guys, first off, I love the trainer. I love trainer road and the podcast. It helped me get through several, several three and four and five hour sessions in the past two months. Yikes. And those are sessions on the trainer. So kudos to you, Todd. Mm-hmm. Uh, base phase is now done. So on to some harder work as you've discussed several times in your podcast and in blog postings. Um, and as fairly well documented in literature, there seems to be a 30 to 45 minute window for post-workout recovery, feeling where your body can uptake more glycogen, etc." However, I have not come across uh, much in the way discussing or much in the way of discussion regarding how long or how hard the workout needs to be to create this heightened ability of the body to uptake glycogen. In and other neither words, neither have I, Todd. Yeah. In yeah, other words, I looked words, into that. I couldn't find a dan- I couldn't find anything. Okay, perfect. Um, he says, and this is. I'll, do you want me to read through the rest of the question then, Chad? Yeah, yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, I just, yeah, yeah. I just wanted to let you know, Todd. I, I did some homework on this particular topic, and I couldn't find anything supporting that either. So um, we'll have Jonathan ask a question, and then I'm going to offer what I think, but not necessarily what mm-hmm. science says. I have more cool. questions too for you, Chad. Okay. Yes, I have questions too. In other words, if I were to do a short but very hard session, maybe ten or fifteen minutes, would that be enough to get my body into the primed phase where I can uptake more glycogen? And that's the catabolic state, right, Chad? Is that right that he's trying to get into? Anabolic. Anabolic, forgive me. Yeah. Or is this uh, contingent on depleting a certain amount of internal stores first before the body can uptake at a higher rate? He says, for this, I'm not at all concerned with weight gain or weight loss, etc. Just interested in the minimum needed to turn on this efficient fueling post-workout window. Thanks, Todd. Yeah, so basically, Todd, you're just trying to deplete stores, and then and then you're just trying to bring that back into balance. So as long as there's a depletion, and then what it is you've activated over the course of the exercise is still going to be in effect. The, the level of depletion, um, and see, this is where I, I struggle because I looked, and I can't find anything that definitively says you need to run them down to a certain point, or the exercise needs to be a particular intensity. So I don't have a good answer for you on that. Just to say that you know, however far you run your stores back, you're, you're simply trying to, uh, negate that depletion and bring it back up to snuff and, and coming off of a high intensity workout, your body's going to do that. Uh, but you know what the workout has to be, how long that workout has to be. I cannot say the, uh, I know too, there's been a study showing that, um, so there's, they, they measured people and, and some people, they did a, you know, a hard hour long workout. And then they did their, there's two groups. One group did a whole bunch of, it was like a three to one or four to one ratio of carbs to protein in that 30 minute to 45 minute window. And they measured people like, and then one other group didn't do that. They measured people four hours afterwards. And that first group had more glycogen uptake, but then after 24 hours, they were the same. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. What, what I pull out of that is that if you're doing workouts once a day, you don't really need to be worried about that. Yeah. But if I was a triathlete. Yeah, the timing isn't as crucial doing like, so as a triathlete, sometimes you do three workouts a day, or you might swim in the morning and run at lunch or, you know, some combination or if you're crit racing, you might race two divisions, that type of stuff. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah, exactly. Two divisions. Mm -hmm. I would totally Mm -hmm. be freaking out. Or if I like had a, sometimes at these festivals, you have like a, an afternoon race and then a morning race. Or if I was a swimmer and I had to do like, you know, uh, a lot of times you at a meet, you'll have a whole bunch of swims in a row. All of that. I would be very concerned about the timing. 
Mm-hmm. So my other question too, Chad, is um, so there's a climb here called Geiger Grade. It takes me about 40 minutes, let's say, to go up that. It's about 6%. And uh, so so I get to the top of that. You know, I my workout is... This is what triathletes used to do this. Um, I depleted some glycogen. Now to descend and get back home, it's going to take me 40 minutes. So I was thinking like... This is back when I was super anal triathlete. I should bring my shake with me and at the top of the climb mm-hmm. have it because by the time I get home, I'm going to miss that window. Yeah. I don't have that yeah, problem anymore on the trainer, but... That's not the worst idea at, at all. Um, you're, you're in that highly receptive state. So if your concern is, uh, is uh, you know, restocking those glycogen stores as promptly as possible, perhaps for a workout that's coming close on the heels of that one, or simply to mitigate uh, muscle damage breakdown with a little uh, bit of protein ingestion, um, it, it's, a, it's absolutely something you could do, assuming that the workload's light enough that you can absorb it on the way back and that you're, you're, you're able to digest something that sounds like it's probably ha- has a you know, more hefty constitution than a gel or a, or a sport drink. Yeah, cool. That was exactly my question, Nate. Good stuff. Um, Son, he says, love the podcast. And I love this question, by the way. He says, I have a question about bridging. Are there any, and by bridging, you'll, you'll understand what it means here. It's not the workout. It's something different. Um, are there any guidelines if you should bridge to a break or not when only considering the amount of power it takes? For example, if the pack is going 25 miles an hour and the break is going roughly that to slightly faster and it is 30 seconds up the road, in other words, the break is, has a 30 second lead on you. Should you attempt to bridge? What about for different time gaps? It seems like this would be a math question, but I wanted to hear your thoughts on it. And Chad, you're, you're an incredibly, you, you have a lot of experience crit racing, but you're a heck of a crit racer. You're very skilled in it too. What do you think? Yeah, I, uh, this is a fun question for sure, son, but I <clears throat> unfortunately can't give you uh, a hard answer except to say that it's, it, it's always a gamble. I mean, you're basically just putting yourself out there and hoping for the best. So I've never once looked at my power meter and, and, and been mid bridge and said, I know I can't hang on to this. It's always been, those guys are up there. I'm going to get to them. And I try as hard as I can until, uh, I either get there or I abandon the chase and, and get, you know, uh, reabsorbed by the field. And guys, but it's never a lot- been a, go ahead. A lot of it too, is like the mood of the Peloton, because if they think that Chad's yeah. no threat and he doesn't have any teammates up too. there, Chad has a teammate up there or there's two teammates up there they might not let chad go anywhere and chad shouldn't be bridging yeah, that's, in that case there are plenty of things you can't control and it's not one of those things you want to question either once you're invested in it you have to be completely mm-hmm. committed to it you can't you can't just kind of uh pardon my speech but you can't half-ass it you can't just kind of dangle out there and say well if this looks like it's coming back i'm going to try but if it doesn't then i'm gonna i'm gonna give up you you get out there and you give it everything you have and until you simply can't do it anymore you know chances yeah. are and it, it's typically successful for me i get up there what that means for the rest of my race can can be a whole host of things depending on how the scenario goes from there. It could be tremendously damaging or it could have been exactly the right thing to do. It's not science. So that's like at this point, it's not science. It's like it's, it's not tactics. It's race strategy. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, that's the difficulty about tactics. And that's what honestly just time and experience, uh, it builds that intuition so that it's something reliable rather than um, I think a lot of the time when we look at breakaways going up the road, a lot of our motivation is fear-based and we kind of get FOMO, right? We don't want to miss out on what's going up the road. And I think the biggest key that you have to do is you have to know the people you're racing with. You have to. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you don't know the people you're racing with, hopefully they don't know you either. And that can play to your advantage. 
Um, like we said, if you're the type of rider that they know can bridge up to that break, the Peloton is not, or at least a portion of that is not going to want to let you go. Mm-hmm. So you have to keep that in mind. Um, it's not just positioning when you're going to break away. I'd say that priority of controlling circumstances in this case is, is number one, awareness of everyone's speed in other, in relation to yours. And then they're what they're performing at, because I know for myself, so Dave, our filmmaker, and you guys have heard him on this podcast before, he's a very good crit or crit racer, uh, road racer, everything, but he is very, he's always known for bridging to breaks. That's his deal. And he is very good at doing that. And to be honest, the reason that he's very good at doing that is because he doesn't attack off the front. That's one thing. He's always intelligent about where he places his attack. Number two, he always goes until he absolutely pops. And he knows that if he doesn't make it to that break and if he, and if the Peloton catches him and he doesn't have it left, at least he gave everything to catch that, to catch that break. He gives, I mean, he puts himself deep, deep into pain to catch these And see things. this, that's what matters too, is Dave has established himself as, as someone who can do this. So Jonathan talked about um, certain danger riders. When they go off the front, a lot of guys aren't going to let them go. But flip side of that is if someone like Dave were to go off the front, people are going to pay attention to that and they're going to want to mark him. Sometimes they'll see, does he get the gap? Well, I know not only does he have a gap, but he's a guy who can stick it. He can, he will probably bridge that gap. Or if it's a breakaway, he, he might actually make that breakaway work. Stronger riders are more likely to go with him. And this goes back to what Jonathan just said, knowing your competition, knowing the guys who, who you're riding with. You know, you see some uh, miscellaneous uh, unknown rider fling out an attack, maybe you don't go with it, but you see someone who's known for doing this and known for making it work, or at least being very committed to the effort, the stronger riders are more likely to go with that. I, I've talked about this before, but I did this in a crit series. So there's a local really good Reno race series and not every race is for this series points. So there's like some, sometimes on Tuesday night, it'll just be a race, but sometimes it'll be for this overall point series. And what I would do is, um, every time that it wasn't for the points, I would, like five laps to go, I would break and I would just go as hard as I could for like, I don't know, X amount of time and then blow up and let the the Peloton catch me because I wanted everyone to think, and maybe I'm at a, a lower category than Chad John, so maybe they weren't that smart, but um, I want everyone to think that, oh, that's Nate. He does this every race and he blows up every race. <laughs> and then on the yep. on the points nights, I I like I pushed through when I did it and I ended up, I, I won the series, but um, and I would like to think that it's due to my craftiness in fitness, but it might've just been <laughs> yeah. only fitness. Like he, I don't, Nate, I don't Nate know. He was it. playing a longer game there though. I mean, he was like yeah, in exactly. a multi-race strategy. Yeah. yeah and that's, it, that's honestly a huge key. Like, so since I'm a mountain biker, when I show up for road races, I really play that up and I let people know that I'm just a mountain biker. I'm just a mountain biker. I don't know what I'm doing. I'm just a mountain biker. And I attack hard off the front when we start every crit and everybody thinks that idiot mountain biker, he doesn't have any race strategy. It's perfect. And then it sets the scene for, it really sets the bar low uh, regarding their expectations for me. So then it gives me a little more freedom as far as what I can do in the race. And for those that are listening to it, that I'll race against, uh, remember I'm just a mountain biker and ignore what you just <laughs> so, Hey, Jonathan, right. uh, uh, you said something about Dave not attacking off the front. Can you explain that? Yeah. So, uh, I mean, whenever a break goes, everyone's eyes are forward on that break, right? And everyone's looking ahead and seeing if they're getting further away, if they're staying the same, or if they're dropping back. And so everyone's attention is ahead. Everyone is already halfway engaged to, to committing to, to go to that break, but they haven't done it yet. So if you go off the front, 
That means that everyone in front, all they need is just like a little piece of cheese with the mouse, right? Like all they need is just for that thing to be inched just a tiny bit closer and they'll go for it. And if you go off the front, in other words, if you're one of the front riders in the group and you go right then, I would say, you know, well, it depends on the group, but if you're in the front and you go off that front, you can expect to have a long tail of riders behind you and probably they're not going to be anxious to help you out. You're going to be spearheading that whole group and pulling them back up to the main group. That's going to be tough. So so when he, where he attacks is he sits back 10 riders, he sits back a number of rows back and he moves out of the pack kind of, uh, you know, in a sly manner. And then that's when he throws an attack in a spot, usually where everybody doesn't want to attack. That's where he'll attack. So into a headwind, that type of a thing. And he'll do so when he's not on the front. So when he's in an inconspicuous position and that allows him to at least get some momentum and be in a far enough away position from the riders in the front so that it'd be very hard for them to catch him by the time he passes them. Yeah, so not only is the guy riding on the front typically or obviously the most visible rider and everyone's going to see what he or she's doing, but he's also probably the most fatigued rider. He's been in the wind longest, or he's at least in the wind right now and doesn't have the benefit of anybody's draft. There's not going to be any slingshot effect. So all that guy ends up doing, all that rider ends up doing is effectively welding it back together. And it's actually a term. And and sometimes that's strategic. Sometimes you'll put one of your stronger guys at the front to, to, uh, ameliorate or, uh, uh, tone down the, the threat. So you want, uh, maybe your, your, your stronger rider is tucked back in the field, trying to play it safe till, till, you know, the later stages of the race. So you'll put a big, strong guy up front to weld back those attacks. But the guys who aren't intending to do that get labeled as a welder and, and people will just sit and ride and wait till that guy blows himself up. And that's when they'll try to bridge across. That's in, um, so in for local racing, it's, it, they're not the regular categories. There's an A and a B and the A riders have, and you know, C, Chad, yeah. Jonathan, yeah, and there's C's too. But the, the A riders, there's multiple national champions in that group. Justin Rossi, mm-hmm. who you guys maybe have seen that video. Like it is an extremely, extremely fast group. Uh, two guys are national crit champions. Like mm-hmm. it's really good. So I'm down in the B's, but in the B's, this is what happens is I know that race really well. And there'll be a preem lap, meaning that for that lap in the crit, whoever wins that gets like, you know, some a free pizza or a handlebar <laughs> wrap, something like that. And that'll yeah. be a really hard lap for the bees. And um, people will sprint. And then everyone kind of sits up and relaxes a little bit. Hmm. And they'll go into this one corner. And they aren't, usually they don't take it pretty well. Everyone hits the brakes a little bit. That, that's when the best time to attack. And I'm actually, I go off the back a little bit. And then I, I start sprinting before, like, so I'm probably three or four lengths back. And this only works if the peloton slows down a bunch. But they, so they slow down. I start sprinting. I get some draft. And by the time I'm, like, I get kind of in line with the front guy, I'm going a good 10 miles per hour faster than anyone else. And you go zooming by and everyone goes, why well, can't? Like, I can't. You know what I mean? That guy's already gone. I'm not gone. even going to well, try to that, go after that. Yeah. Yeah. But if they saw me from the front, it's like it's like I have more time to wind up my speed by doing that. Yep. But in something like the A group where the A never slows down, like no one in the A group just like sits up. It's hard the whole time. Uh-huh. That strategy, I would just get dropped. Right. Like but there's there's yeah. two lessons to be learned from what Nate just stated, and and one is that you, you hit people when they're down. So they just did a sprint. Everybody's a little bit gassed. That's a good time to go. You hit people when they don't want to go. You know, you're heading into a curve that heads into a tailwind. That it's unlikely. 
that most writers are going to follow you. So you kind of take advantage of people and their fatigue and their yeah. you know, lack of motivation. And after that turn too, it's on the backside of the the crit guys, and there's a big, usually a huge crosswind, like twenty five mile cross, head crosswind, just yeah. brutal yeah. thing. And everyone yeah. strings out, and no one wants to like chase you. At least in the bees, no one wants to chase you down because they're like, oh, I'm going to ruin my. <laughs> Fit, like I'm not going to be able to sprint at the end because I'm going to have to chase this guy. Uh, mm-hmm. And there's no teamwork in the bees where there might Meanwhile, be some none of, in the A's. Yeah, none of us want to let it get to a sprint. If you're if you're in a race where the um, riders are, are clearly and usually this happens in lower category races where they're going to have different priorities, they're not looking to win. Um, if they're just looking to get preems, um, the fact that that race one year last year a huge guy with long hair showed up and like kit and bike from the 90s, nobody know who knew who he was. He showed up, and when they rang the bell lap, he like looked over at me with a panicked look and asked if that was the pizza preem lap. And I said, I have no clue. It's just a preem lap. And he <laughs> dropped us so hard. There was no way that we could have passed <laughs> the guy. And he got the pizza preem. The next, and he did that every time there's a preem lap, he just destroyed us. And that guy probably had like eight pizzas by the end of the night. And one of the final preem laps, he goes up and looks at us and asks us, is this another pizza preem? And we said, no, it's water park tickets. And he just dropped out. He was done. He was not interested in that. I think he was hungry and he was just feeding himself. But so there are certain races where you'll have guys like that or packs like that. And then usually as it gets higher category, like Chad said, I know, I always know if there's a preem lap, well, guess what? You think it's hard now? It's going to be really hard next lap. It's going to be absolutely brutal. The counterattacks mm-hmm. are going to fly. It's going to be really rough. Now, getting back to your original question, though, son, let's say that the pace right now, and you're and you're running, you're riding with the peloton, there's a break up the road, and you're thinking about bridging up to it. If your average power or normalized power, what you're looking at, if it's way over what you know you can sustain for this event, then a breakaway or you bridging to that break, you have to consider the debt that it could put you in. Now, granted, what if you get to that break and you're able to rest enough so that you can, you know. I guess you can take poles, recover, and you might be able to gain some ground. That would be a really good thing, but it's not going to happen in every case. So I always try to keep in mind, I look at that break and I do absolutely fuzzy and incorrect math. And I guarantee you it's almost always rosy, right? To convince myself in one direction or another, but I kind of run in my mind, "Eh, it might take me two laps to catch that guy. And I know two laps is X amount of time. And I know my best sustainable power is this. And right now, just riding with this group, it's this. So that's how I kind of factor in if I can bridge. And that same kind of goes for breakaways. Like Nate said, that late race, late race breakaway, you want to, that's when a power meter can be handy. You know, you're not looking at it the whole time, but, but that's, uh, so I guess that would be the only thing I would consider is know your, your, the amount of power you should be able to sustain for that whole event. And then keep that in mind. And and I would recommend looking at normalized power in a crit just because of the crazy surges yeah, and being familiarized sure. with yourself with how much normalized yeah, but, power you can sustain for that. But race. son, you, you you can't be afraid of taking those chances either. I mean, you can't you yeah. you can look at the numbers, and the more you learn yourself as a rider, the more you can uh, not necessarily rely on those numbers, but make good use of them. But really, you just have to try and try and try mm-hmm. and try. And and most of those attempts are going to result in failure. But that's how you learn what works, what doesn't work. So and you, just you, don't be don't be afraid to give it a shot. I mean, when I, when I coached riders a few years ago, I would assign them in this particular crit that we're talking about. It's a really safe crit. It's it's really boils down to power, bit of strategy, but it's not a technical course at all. So I would require them 
to, you know, tonight your, your job is to get off the front three times. I don't care what happens. I don't care if you get a preem. I don't care if you win or get on the podium. All I want you to do is attack three times. And that just lays the foundation for learning, you know, what it's like to attack. How long can I hold it? Um, when, you know, am I jumping away from the field hard enough? Do I have the power to stay away for a minute, two minutes? Can I lap the field, whatever, but either way you, you have to, there's a fair amount of experimentation there. And most of the time it's going to result in failure. You can't let that uh, discourage you though. A lot of times too, is you get us, that's really good advice, Chad, go for it because that's the only way you're going to build the type of fitness you need to, or at least that the type of, you know, the, the now the technical analysis you're going to need to be able to make this stuff happen is by throwing it at the wall and seeing if it sticks and doing it over and over again, you know? Exactly. And you, you also get power PRs, right? Like crits all the oh, time. Yeah, yeah. So you might say, yeah. I can only hold 300 watts for five minutes, yep, but good point. not this time. Exactly. It's, and it's that's more. what I mean by learning, learning about yourself as a rider. You think you know everything there is to know about yourself, but you put yourself in the right situation and you'll learn something new. If I'm on we a solo talk. break... Breakaway too. Sorry, we're going to talk some more because this is so much fun. <laughs> yeah, um, this we can I talk my, about this for like four episodes. We everyone love loves tactics. it too. Everyone loves yeah. it. I want to actually. I want to go race crits. I was just thinking. I'm like, I'm, I was about to look on the internet to see when our crit series starts. Um, if <laughs> I'm on week. a, if I'm on a, really cool. If I'm on a um, breakaway, what I'll use my power meter is one. Make sure I'm not going like 580 watts. You know, like something that I can't mm. do. But mostly, it's the stick where I watch it and, I, and you know, it hurts really bad. And they look down and it goes, you're at 220 Watts. And I'm like, Oh gosh, I got to get back up to 300 or 320. And I just, mm-hmm. it kind of is like, it's like the, the, the coach yelling in my ear, go harder, go harder, go harder. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Good point. All right. Let's uh, take Brandon's question. And this one's interesting and we're going to deep dive. Now, Brandon is a local athlete that we know from Reno actually. And he just raced uh, his first pro 70.3 at Oceanside. So kudos is this, on that, Brandon. Is this Brandon Need? Brandon Need. Yep. Okay. The one. Yeah. In fact, you we have some images of him on blog posts and stuff. He's a really skinny guy. Really skinny guy. And this pertains to what we're talking about. So he says, hey, guys, I have a bit of a special snowflake question I was thinking of writing into the Ask a Cycling Coach podcast about. Um, and he says, I raced my first half Ironman on Saturday. I noticed that I was going almost all out on the flats and still getting dropped by some other guys. In doing research on them, I've noticed that the magic wattage for the top guys is 4 to 4.2 watts per kilogram for a half. I was right at 4 watts per kilogram for the race, but lost a ton of time on the bike. I've come to the assumption that this is due to watts per kilogram, meaning close to nothing, in a flat time trial situation. My position on my speed concept, that's his bike, is as slammed as it can possibly be, Forgive me. Which so isn't I don't all, believe which isn't always better. Just exactly right. That's yeah. a, that's yeah. a red flag that's, there. It's one point we'll we'll address. So I don't believe reducing my drag coefficient is the answer. That's his the, in his words there. He says my question is whether it would be beneficial for me to bulk up by at least five pounds while trying to increase my overall power to be able to go along the flats faster. I raced at one thirty seven on Saturday, but noticed that most of the top guys in the seventy three or in the seventy point three are racing between one fifty five and one seventy. Also, if I'm trying to bulk up um, in cycling muscle, is there any, or is there an appropriate approach to that? So, we took the liberty of kind of breaking down his performance for you guys, and we did some research, and I'm sure we've got plenty to share on it. So, first of all, this is the Oceanside 70.3 course. Um, and so can I describe that got, course? Yeah, it's bit? yeah, it's I, I, I've done flat. it. Cool. Yeah, yeah I, go I, ahead. Yeah, yeah. Go ahead. So it's an open water uh, ocean swim. You go in kind of a bay, then you go out in the ocean, come back. 
the uh, course, you go on uh, Camp Pendleton, which is, I hope I'm saying that right, is a marine base down there. And pretty much the entire race is flat. But then when you get to maybe the, the last two thirds, there's a couple big climbs. And then on the way back into town, usually have a headwind and um, it's also flat. And then the run is an oceanside and that is extremely flat, except for you do, I think, I forget how many laps, three or four laps, but there's a little like 400 foot, 500 foot steep um, section of road that you run up and down each time. But other than that, it's, it's, uh, I, I would consider this a flat race. Mm-hmm. So his times, just so that you guys have a, an idea, he had a 4.32.21, so 4 hours, 32 minutes, 21 seconds. Um, his and the winner time, was like 4.02, right? 4.02, yep. Yeah. And the swim time was 26 minutes, 21 seconds. That was a swim. Uh, 2 hours, 24 minutes, and 56 seconds on the bike. And one hour, 26 second, or twenty six minutes, 38 seconds on the run. And just so you guys know, he's a very good runner. He's a, he's a fast runner. He was a collegiate uh, runner, right? Yep. Yeah. Collegiate runner. He's, he's solid. So he, um, we broke down a little bit of, of everything else and in the run, by the way, well, actually we'll get into that later. I'm sure Nate, you can bring that up, but for, uh, just so you guys know, he's five foot 10. He weighs, he is like, we, we told you he's skinny. He weighs 137 pounds. And his FTP going into the event was 315, so that puts him at about 5.07 watts per kilogram. So that's plenty fast. Um, so, guys, let's um, – well, first of all, best bike split suggested. We ran his numbers, and we used best bike split. That's a, for you guys that don't know. We've mentioned it before, but it's an awesome website that can help you build a pacing plan for an event. And it said that ideally for you, Brandon, it would have been a 2 hours and 20 minutes and 22 second time. Uh, on the bike split at your current weight and everything else. So l- l- let me just kick this off by saying, um, typically, I-, I would just say you you probably don't need to gain weight. You probably need to improve your fitness. But because I know Brandon and I know how exceptionally fit he is, I think we have to look at other options. And in his case, you know, he's he's already working at five watts a kilogram, which is way up there. So he's probably kind of topped out his metabolic fitness. He, he probably actually does need to address this in terms of strength gain, he actually has to create more work or uh, work capacity. And then, you know, he, he hones that into a point where, you know, he translates that increased body weight into even if he stays at the same watts per kilogram, he's going to go faster, especially on a flat course. So I, I think yeah. strength improvement is absolutely the right call in Brandon's case. So that's something to think about is on a flat time trial like this, there's watts per kilogram but then there's watts per like drag cda Mm -hmm. what you say and on time trials when it's flat that's really the equation that you need to see how fast you are is you want the most watts and the least amount of aero drag where where, yeah yeah, we're in a road race the watts per kilogram where he's drafting the whole time and then can break away on a hill or something is, is the most important thing and that's where i think a lot of smaller guys on flat courses although they have a a big watt per kilogram they just can't keep up. Um, my second point, to, to Chad, you have something to say? Well, just so, and you might be getting to this. He talked about his position being, quote unquote, as slammed as it can possibly be. And that's that's the second half of what Nate just described. So, yeah, we want big watts, but we also want to minimize our uh, our, our, our uh, size in the air. So, so our drag. And people think typically by doing this, they just get as low as they can. And then that takes care of that. But that, that comes at an expense. And we've talked about this a number of times. There's a trade-off between being arrow and being 
powerful. So perhaps Brandon, you know, with his uh, 5.07 watts per kilogram, isn't putting out as much power as he actually can because his position's too cramped. So maybe even before he considers strength training, he should consider his fit. There's also, um, I've read so many triathletes who've gone to the, the wind tunnel and I, I read all the reports. And a lot of times I've seen it where people, they'll lower it and it will actually increase their drag. So not even, so mm-hmm. one thing is it's closing your hip angle and you put out less power, but two, you're going slower. Um, there's, we don't have to get enough, probably do a whole episode on aerodynamics and fit and stuff and eyeballing it. But really the best way is to spend thousands of dollars and go to a, a wind tunnel, but maybe you can eyeball it too a little bit better. Brandon, I'd love to see a picture of you and see on your bike and see if there's anything we just notice, um, of your fit. The other thing is Joe Friel. So if you don't know Joe Friel, he's an iconic triathlon coach, coached many, you know, top, top end people. And he has a blog post talking about the optimum weight for pro triathletes based on heights per inches, or, um, you you multiply your, your height in inches by a certain, pretty much every inch you should weigh this much. And so Brandon is 5'10", which is 70 inches. And, uh, he's 137 pounds. Joe Friel thinks that the best uh, triathletes for pound for weight should be between 2.1 and what is it, 2.3. So if late, let's let's put him right in the middle at 2.2. Joe Friel says that he should be 154 pounds. Hmm. So Brandon's saying gain five pounds, and that still puts him below the optimum, according to Joe Friel, weight. Um, I know too is he's coming from a running background that uh, it's. Lighter is almost always better in running, um, unless you're a sprinter. So he, Brandon, according to Joe Friel, could go up to 154 uh, and still be just fine. Even and Brandon even pointed out that the top finishers, the top age group, or just the top guys at that race were between 155 and 170. Yeah, Andy Potts, who uh, he wins that race a lot, and he was one of the top guys, and he also does almost all of his cycling training indoors. Um, he's a big guy, like very big guy, uh, a lot of weight. So he's, if, if he was at 2.3, which is the top end of Joe Friel, that would put him at 161, which is about 25 pounds heavier. Crazy. So that could be something that Brandon. So, so Chad, if he does want to, obviously he doesn't want to gain body fat. Mm-hmm. How, what, how should he approach it? I'm guessing in the off season rather than like, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Trying to what couple big strength improvements with endurance improvements is uh, basically impossible. I, I wouldn't even recommend it. But, but yeah, he's got a lot of room to work with. I mean, he can put on, as you stated, literally twenty pounds of weight, which just puts him in into the range of the top finishers. Or keeps him in line with what Joe Friel recommends. Um, and then you'd be as good a resource on this as I am. I mean, that's that's all hypertrophy. He just needs to add muscle mass, which is you know a very particular type of of weight training, and it's not hard to come by a whole lot of information on how to go about that. Yeah, I would. Um, and two, I some upper body too because swimming. I know he wasn't the top swimmer, but the the top swimmers do have more um, mm-hmm. upper body mass, and it's really important, especially in a, a flatter race like this, to get in that front swim pack so you can get in the front bike pack. And I know the yeah. drafting is it's a lot longer. And according to specializing in the wind tunnel, you get no benefit at the pro 
but man, those top guys sure seem to go a little bit faster when they're yeah, in that I'm, long, stretched out peloton. Brandon's body type, if you look at him, he looks every bit the runner. He doesn't look like a triathlete just yet. I mean, he's yeah. got, he put, put a little more muscle mass on his body, he's going to start to look more like a triathlete. So uh, I, I'm not entirely sure that his physique is, well, it looks like it's not necessarily working in his favor. I mean, he's very fit. He's at the high end of things and, and his gains are going to be small ones, but I, I think he can get those small gains with a little more, a little more muscle mass on his frame. Yeah. And I would be doing squats and that kind of thing just to gain some yeah. of that muscle. Um, yeah. and I mean, Brandon, if you, so you, you go two ways, you could race the whole season and get a lot of experience and, and figure out how all this works. And then kind of in the fall in your off season, start building this up. Um, you could also kind of start building now and just kind of say, I'm still going to race the season, but I'm going to do even worse. Um, I don't know. It's, it's kind of up to you. I don't know what your goals are and your sponsor goals are this year and stuff, but what, what do you, cause it could take him. It's, it could take him a while to. Yeah, that can be a, that can be a that. long game and, and it's not something he's going to do this season. Uh, not realistically, especially I know at one point he was talking about targeting the Olympic qualifier, which I'm pretty sure that window is closed by now, but, uh, this is this is going to be a bit of a process. That's what I'm saying is he could kind of extend it rather than trying to to feed it into like three months this winter. Mm-hmm. To oh yeah, sure. Start he, it, he can get cracking on now. that winter. Yeah, yeah, and then yeah, whenever he wants to. Relative. Gonna, yeah, but it's it'd be fun and and two, you know, you want to it's and it would be called like a in bodybuilding a lean bulk. So you'd want to kind of manage your calories still because you're going to have to eat more calories to gain that. And he would you know it'd be great to use fat calipers or you can get the cheap tanita scale as we've demonstrated because he's going to want to put on muscle and not raise his percent body fat uh you know keep that leanness and just get some more more muscle on his frame mm-hmm. the, so the other interesting thing too is his uh on the run his first mile was a 514 pace but his last two miles were 817 pace so i think and i think brandon could run that really fast pace he probably though overbiked a little bit or he just mentally lost it when you know mm-hmm. i think there were a couple age groupers close to him and uh i could see that just being like oh this race is done why that's tough why that's dig hard. yourself deep for those last you know yeah yeah it doesn't even mean he paced the run poorly just you know, he may have might have given up on those last couple of miles knowing there knowing there was yeah. nothing really to to gain from pushing and Looking at other pros too, in Brandon's defense, is that most everyone had a fast first mile, and the last two miles were a slower pace. So sometimes in uh, triathlon, they won't get the the mile markers where they time you exactly right. So it'll look like like you did a bad pace, even though you didn't. But relative to them, he did slow down for his last two miles compared to like the top guys who finished. All right, last question for today is going to be Eldon's question. He says, my wife Lisa is preparing for the Leadville 100 this year. You may know this, Eldon, by the way, the fat cyclist, um, and his wife Lisa's the hammer. And he says uh, she's planning to race single speed this year at Leadville. Her goal is to best her current PR and standing women's single speed record of nine hours and 50 minutes. Her current training plan is sweet spot base, sustained power build, rolling road race, but how should she, which by the way, even though that may seem weird for a mountain bike race, Leadville more or less fits right along that profile. So, um, and then he says, but how should she alter her training for single speed racing? Uh, her weight, she's 125 pounds. Her FTP is 231. So she's at four Watts per kilogram and she's going to be Good using job. 32 by 20 gearing. So that's, that's pretty balanced there. Um, and, uh, she's planning on doing some similar events before 
Leadville leading up to it on her single speed so she can get used to it. So Chad, what would you recommend to people getting used to or for how to adapt their training for single speed? Well, in her case, she's restricted to a single gear, which means her, her, uh, race and therefore her training is going to be, uh, multi-cadence if you will. So she's just going to have to get used to, you know, slogging through tough climbs at a grind and, uh, overspinning to simulate downhills. So really she's just going to have to vary her cadence a lot, keep her power on target. Not, not, not much of that's going to change at all, but she's going to have to consider, you know, how long her climbs are, what, what's the typical cadence in that gearing and, and subject herself to that stuff over the course of her training, Leadville being as long as it is, none of this is going to be particularly high wattage. So she's not at a threat of, uh, you know, joint breakdown or, or issues of that nature, but, uh, she is going to have to figure out, you know, just, just what sort of cadence is going to work for her and, and train accordingly. If you have the race file, Lisa, from back then, then you can look through that and see if you had cadence recorded that day, you can see what was demanded on that day. Mm-hmm. When you wrote that, that could be a good idea. And then, I mean, I know we're, we're always at the reason that we have you go through these cadence drills is to give you that, that, that safety net, so to speak, when things do go tough on race day and either you're stuck in your big ring or you're riding a single speed or the other way around, um, so that you're not completely unfamiliar with riding at those cadences. So really explore the cadence spectrum, Lisa, on this one, um, follow your training plan as, as prescribed, right? Chad, just, just explore the space. Yeah, no, no need to change anything there. She's just going to have to expose herself to, you know, these different cadences recruit different types of muscles, so different recruitment patterns. And, and, uh, it, it takes a different toll in terms of, uh, fueling too. So carbohydrate and, and fat burning and the, the topics that we beat to death, but it's something that she needs to be familiar with heading into the race. Don't want any race day surprises. Very cool. All right, guys, thanks for joining us. That's all the time that we have for today. Uh, you can submit those questions to us. Remember, you can just go to trainerroad.com slash podcast and submit your question there. Submit it with the ask trainer road hashtag on Twitter or Instagram. And we will go through as many questions as we can next week. And remember, you can find this on SoundCloud, iTunes, or any other podcast engine you use. Thanks so much, guys. We'll talk to you next week. Thanks, everybody. Bye-bye.